What music are we going to use? We should use the anthem of the United States. Yes. I like that idea. Um, does anybody want to sing it? This week, we bring you an inspiring song from Paul Dickinson. <laughs> oh, say can you see by the dawn's early okay, light. Okay, that's enough. Clay, go to the real music. Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivik Karnak. I'm Christiana Happy Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. <laughs> this week, we try to contain our enthusiasm at the election of Joe Biden to be the 46th president of the United States. We speak to Ben Rhodes, former Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama. And we speak to Todd Stern, who led the US in the climate negotiations in Paris. Thanks for being here. So I'm just going to play you before we kick off. This is what it sounded like in this house in Costa Rica about three or four hours ago. <laughs> so in case you can't tell, that is Christiana Figueres, former executive secretary of the UNFCCC, screaming and running around the house, jumping up and down. It was difficult to get her to stop for hours as she realized that the global agreement that she was a major part of creating was soon going to contain the United States again. What a day. We came to this point and my God, it's been painful to get here, hasn't it? <laughs> Clay, we have to go to you. How are you feeling as a Michigan voter, yeah. the only person with a US passport on the, on the, the, whole team. On the team? Yeah. How are you feeling? <laughs> uh, man, when Michigan was officially called for Biden, I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs> it has been an absolutely wild ride of emotions. And to watch it build like that over a few days, right? I mean, the Red Mirage that everybody thought was going to come. So mm -hmm. for a couple of days there, it kind of looked like it was going to slip away from us. Yeah, Trump seriously. got Florida and, you know, it, we, were, we were wringing our hands here pretty extensively, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, and, and in Michigan, we saw the numbers go back and forth for the presidential race and back and forth for the Senate seat here as well. And it switched like four or five times over election night and the next day. So <laughs> that was crazy. But in the end, Michigan came through for Joe Biden and for Gary Peters. It all worked out. But I mean, one of the big shocks, and I sent you a little clip of this, was seeing after Trump made this very peculiar speech saying that he'd won, um, an ABC News presenter, you know, spoke directly to the American people and said, this is the language of authoritarianism, stopping the vote is wrong. Yeah. I was really struck by that. I thought it was a kind of historic moment to see, you know, the media playing, uh, you know, a critical role as the fourth estate, as we call it, hmm. you know, protecting our society against uh, authoritarianism. It yeah. was it, not something I thought I'd see in my life. Yeah. And it was reassuring to see that, you know, right afterwards on the different networks. But at that point, my blood was already boiling because while he was talking, they were still counting my vote and my neighbor's votes. So anyway, the truth is we had a great turnout in Detroit and in Wayne County, thanks to the hard work of different grassroots organizations, amazing people. Uh, the vote has been counted, the people have spoken, and we want change. So for, for Michigan to go for Biden and reject that authoritarianism in the purest form via the voice of the people was, it, 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 was, it was amazing. So a happy ending. Yeah. 
So, um, so I, I think we need to talk, you know, obviously this podcast about climate, we need to talk about the implications for climate. The main thing we want to discuss is the international implications, but we should also touch on the domestic agenda and what you can do domestically. But I think we have to start, Christiane, I mean, so many people will be interested to know how you feel watching this. I mean, you've mm. talked many times about a few years ago when President Trump pulled out of the Paris Agreement, the sort of fraying of the international diplomacy. Does this feel like the beginning of it coming back? Do you feel anxious? Do you feel excited about it? Tell us how how this day is for you. Well, what a roller coaster for all of us, right? To to be seeing these numbers go back and forth, back and forth, um, for several days. But feelings, you're asking about feelings. Um, well, uh, obviously, totally beyond ecstatic at the final result. Um, but w- once you get beyond that, the immediate um, celebration of the final result. If you step back from it you realize that this truly is the arc of history, isn't it? Mm. That, um, you know, we as as a society can step away from integrity and from respect and from democratic institutions in those countries that are democracies for a while. But that it is not a permanent fixture of who we are. Mm. Let me... In the, in the same breath, express my concern for the fact that there was such a huge turnout on both sides. Yeah. On both sides, there was an increase in turnout and of voting. And what that actually denotes is a deeply divided country, a deeply divided government, a deeply divided political scene that is going to make it very difficult for a Biden administration to do what it needs to do, to roll back the rollbacks, right? They will have to roll back the rollbacks. How are they going to do that on a regulatory level? How are they, I mean, signing back into the Paris Agreement is, you know, as difficult as putting your signature on a piece of paper. That's that's not the issue. Um, That is a a, a three-minute process. that's, That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about... What are the signals that are going to be given to the economy of the United States to get back on to the decarbonization path that most other industrialized countries are already on? So let's let's start there, because I think that's a great point. And I think rejoining the Paris Agreement, you know, and, and what the other world leaders now expect from Biden is a different conversation, which we should get into. But just, I mean, domestically... The reality is, and we're recording this on, on Friday afternoon, and it looks pretty clear that Biden has won the presidency. He's taken Pennsylvania and perhaps Georgia. But it also looks equally clear that Mitch McConnell will still be sitting in yep. control of the Senate agenda with a majority of votes. And we know exactly how he treated Obama's agenda in trying to block everything. Um, so, And we also know that there is now a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court. So... Most presidents, if they wanted to do something and they couldn't go the legislative route, they would go the regulatory route. Both of those look difficult. Um, so what 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 options are there, um, would we say? And, and we're not experts in this, so we won't spend too long on it, but I think it's worth drawing out the issues to actually make the kind of progress we need. Well, and to that, I would like to add what I just said, right? Popular support, you can, yeah. you can eke out some wins if you have popular support. But he doesn't in yeah. this case because the country is fundamentally divided. Uh, three, you know, what, I don't is it, think three so. million 
Okay. Convince me, Paul. I'm very open to be convinced. I don't think that's the problem. I think the system is dysfunctional and that's causing people to feel like, you know, oh, it's the Republicans. Oh, it's the Democrats. It isn't that. It's the system that's dysfunctional. That's the point. Well, I mean, give, if that was the case, and I don't know if that convinced you or not, I mean, what, what probably is going to have to happen, and I know that Jonathan Pershing, our friend, um, who, was, who led um, the climate negotiations under Obama for the, the close of his term, has actually said we must not discount the idea that actually in the end climate will be a bipartisan effort. And that's probably, you know, what's going to have to happen, right? Is that actually a President Biden is going to have to persuade the country and Republicans that an effort to deal with climate, merge it with infrastructure, is about a recovery from COVID and a recreation of economic opportunity. Now, that's a hard road to climb, but that's one route back into that. I um, think it's the only It's the route. only route back in, right? Because all the others are just blocked. Yeah. So, 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 Paul, just as a response to you, I don't think it's the system that's dysfunctional. It's leadership that has been dysfunctional for four years. Because when leadership is actually pulling people apart as opposed to bringing them together into common ground, such as, um, as Tom has just, um, just explained, then there's very little space to move forward because you do need to have a broader common ground in the middle. You will always have extremists on the side, but you have to fertilize the promising middle ground that gets things agreed and implemented. And that's not what we have seen in the past four years. Sure, but I think that the leadership is really uh, typically a, a response to a kind of a big constituency. And you've had a big constituency of certain industries, particularly fossil fuel industries, that kind of wanted to make uh, uh, climate change a partisan issue. We've talked about this many times before. Many people on the podcast have talked about, you know, kind of money interfering with the system. And actually, the way to resolve this is for these enormous new companies, the next eras and all the renewables companies, to actually put money into promoting uh, climate change as a central bipartisan issue to counter those dollars. So the leaders are on top of the, the sort of financial coalitions that help shift public opinion. Now, um, obviously, one of the areas that this is going to have a big impact in, um, and we indicated this at the beginning, is in the rejoining of the Paris Agreement and the US actually re-engaging in the international process to deal with climate. Obviously, the US remains the only country to have announced their withdrawal from Paris. We should also mention this week has contained not only the US election, but also the US actually formally withdrawing from Paris, which happened on Wednesday. Um, now on Friday, it looks like they'll be back in inside three months, which no, is Biden which is has already said that he's going to rejoin us absolutely as soon as he can. So that's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He tweeted. It was brilliant. He said, you know, US withdrew. 77 days later, we'll be back in. Um, but Christiana, what does that mean, um, the US rejoining? Because the world is going to want, yes, of course, the US to rejoin, but they're also going to want the same thing that every other country is expected to produce, which is a more ambitious, nationally determined commitment that would come forward um, towards the end of next year. So is there going to be a sort of a flush of enthusiasm and relief, which we're all feeling and which we should enjoy, but then a sort of sober reality about the fact that the, although the US can engage and use its diplomacy, that domestic logjam is actually going to mean it's going to be difficult to move the international agenda forward in the way they might like. Well, I think it is important to differentiate the procedural rejoining of the Paris Agreement from the policies that will be enacted, right. right? Because the procedural rejoining, I mean, is fun, but it's it's no big deal. The, yeah. the, the true transformation is to go back to the understanding that uh, what we 
thought ages ago, it seems like ages ago, that you always had to choose between economics, profit, and people and planet on the other side or divide among the three, that that is no longer the case, that actually you can find common ground among them and that those who are more vested in one or the other have to come together. Right. And, and the United States will be doing that for sure. Now, they will do two things, I think. One is domestically, let's remember that one thing is what the federal government can or cannot do, depending on how tied their hands are. But the other thing is what the states can do. And one pressure that will be relieved by the Biden administration is the pressure against states that want to move forward. So the pressure, for example, that California has been putting up with, um, Mm -hmm, that will mm -hmm. be removed because all of a sudden, right, the federal government will actually be aligned as the same thing with New York, same thing with Massachusetts, all of those states that want to move forward. So I think that is going to be probably the space in which you will see more and more active policy making to put incentives in place for a decarbonized economy will happen at the state level um, because of the situation at the national level. But what a Biden administration can do at the national or the federal level is reach out to other countries. So I am pretty certain that the first country that they will reach out to is China. Right. Because that is the other largest economy, though that's the leader in developing world. And They are totally the leaders in all of these technologies. So that, I think, will be a very active conversation. That doesn't mean that they will be forgiven for their human rights um, situation or for um, an unfair commercial uh, relationship with the United States. But let's remember that that had been the climate conversation had been sort of corralled and um, and kept in a safe space because it is a vision that now the new Biden administration and the Chinese government actually share. So it's a very important bridge for them to have a more decent and respectful conversation on other issues as well. But I do think that they will hold hands and it could lead to an even more ambitious um, target setting on the part of China. Let's remember that what President uh, Xi Jinping said is that they would be at peak emissions before 2030 and zero net before yeah. 2060. Does that mean that now with the Biden administration, they could change those numbers and be much more um, aggressive on their decarbonization? Potentially. The other very interesting move um, that I'm sure will come very soon after that is a good conversation with India. Because mm. if you look over to Asia, you have now China, you have Japan, you have Korea aligned on to net zero by 2050. But India is not there yet. And India is hugely important, has always been to the United States climate change efforts and will be so, and has to be treated completely differently and independently from the other countries. So I think a India conversation will be uh, will also be uh, part of the uh, of the priorities of international priorities of the Biden administration. Plus, I'm sure that there will be a very active reaching out to developing countries, mm. um, not beyond the emerging countries to truly developing countries, because basically the Trump administration turned their back to them. And so um, I think that will also occur. 
and will be incredibly helpful in the lead up to COP26. I think, you know, the the preparations now and the prospects for COP26 are fundamentally different. Fundamentally, than right, they right. were yeah, yeah. Yeah, just yeah. three days mm. ago. And do you think that um, a President Biden would be able to? Because I mean, my memory of um, of of the lead up to COP twenty one is that it was the Obama administration's commitment to bilateral climate finance that really brought developing countries to the table with national commitments that changed things. The question is whether Biden would have the latitude and the political will to do something similar, or do you think that the politics have moved on and that's no longer the thing that makes the difference? No, I think finance is still on the table <laughs> because it hasn't been on the table, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not visible, therefore it still is a huge, um, uh, a huge discussion. But, and so what a Biden administration might be able to do on bilateral remains to be seen. Um, obviously, there are possibilities for, um, bi- at a bilateral level, there are possibilities for um, debt for climate swaps oh, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Um, that are very interesting for Africa because Africa does have international debt. Latin America has mostly domestic debt. And so those bilateral deals are not quite as important for Latin America. But for Africa, they can be incredibly helpful. And the other thing that the U.S. could do, of course, is it can definitely change its position um, in all of the multilateral um, finance institutions. Right. Um, you know, I mean, you, you can't change who directs the, the World Bank or who directs the IDB that are definitely put there by the Trump administration. But the director of the United States at those banks um, can definitely have a much more helpful position than what we've seen in the past um, four years and can therefore use the multilateral finance system to also help developing countries. Yeah. So you're saying, Christiana, that we should really, uh, the whole climate change movement should should sort of um, readjust to be far more ambitious now, really, and, and, and kind of use this opening. Um, but a challenging question, I mean, you know, this, this I mean, we've got to remember a, a kind of very difficult long period is over, uh, which is incredibly exciting. God, that feels but good was, to hear you say that. <laughs> doesn't it feel good? <laughs> but, but, um, there was this kind of crazy fascination with Trump. You know, we couldn't keep our eyes off him in a, in a weird kind of way. And uh, I did hear actually Ben Rhodes say, you know, Obama would tweet about climate change and the media wouldn't cover it. How can we get that? How can we kind of, in, in not in a negative, downer way, but in a positive, accretive way, a building way, how can we keep media excitement uh, and growing around this, this kind of new lean forward rather than leaning back? So, I mean, you know, one, one thing I would say on that, and I think Biden is actually very well placed to be this person, is, is you know, his, his message has always been, he's always been the person who supports the unions, who's all about jobs, who stands up for the blue-collar worker. I mean, he's had a long career in the Senate and otherwise where that's been the thing, right? And, I mean, he says now, if someone asks him about climate change, he says, if you ask me about climate change, I think about jobs. And he's actually very good at bringing those messages together. And I think the big hope is actually this is, you know, and he's fully adopted this idea of build back better. If he can bring together the idea that the United States needs to renew itself, needs to recreate its infrastructure, needs to build back from the coronavirus pandemic and the pain of the last four years, and in doing so creates jobs and solving climate change almost becomes a side benefit of that massive infrastructure plan, then you can really build the momentum and the excitement behind a sort of 21st century America that is looking to the future and looking to recreate itself. That's the exciting narrative. And that's the consensus, actually. I mean, Fox News said 70% of voters want the government spending more on green energy on election night. Uh, Maybe there is a consensus to be found. 
Mm. Now, we're going to talk to Ben Rhodes. Exciting. Now, Ben, of course, has been on the podcast before. He's a good friend of ours. Um, he um, makes us look like mere children in his approach to podcasting. His podcasts are amazing, coming out of Crooked Media. Um, I'm sure that today is a euphoric day for Ben. So let's give him a ring and hear how it's landing with him. And um, one thing we should say is that, yes, we have today looked at some of the issues around a Biden presidency and some of the things that will be challenging, but we should also really enjoy today. And thank you to mm. the 74 million United States citizens who made a choice today to vote Donald Trump out. It is greatly appreciated by your friends all around the world. This is actually the beginning of a new type of future um, where we can now Yay! come together and deal with these issues. So we look forward to being in that future with you. So Ben, thank you so much for taking a few minutes out of your very, very busy time on this arguably the most exciting day in recent history. Certainly in the past four, four years. years. We have had Christiana running around the house screaming at fever pitch for the last few hours. She's only just recently stopped. <laughs> Woo! What a roller coaster to get here, but uh, but but here we are. Yeah. Um, so, Ben, we are very interested in hearing your assessment. Just before we get to that, I'm sorry to interrupt. Can I just also say that... Crooked Media and Ben and colleagues there have kept me sane for the last four years. God bless <laughs> yeah. you for everything you've Thanks. done in bringing the movement together, in getting everything to this point. You guys have been a major part of this. Thank you, thank you. It's been fantastic. And, 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 yeah, and yeah, don't yeah. let up over yeah, yeah. the next and four don't years. Let up. Yeah. Don't let up. I uh, know, ah, that's, that's, that's the main lesson. The main lesson is that this never ends. Exactly. It's a struggle without end. Yeah. Yes. Um, where were we, Tom? Sorry, you were about to say you're curious to know, and then I interrupted you. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. We're um, we're very curious to hear your assessment uh, of what a Biden administration can do on climate change, because I I think you know while we're all deliriously happy about the final result, we are disappointed that uh, that there is not uh, a, a clean slate. Uh, uh, on the hill for yeah. him to work with. And so that really puts a damper in what he could do in regulation, uh, what he could do in terms of yeah other levers that he could pull. So what do you think is the route toward quick, efficient, high-impact climate policy, given the reality that we have today? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, I do want to actually say something about Tom's comment about Cricket Media that, you know, in addition to podcasts, we have this activist wing and, and mm. Vote Save America is a key part of it. Um, Stacey Abrams, we partnered with on uh, Fair Fight, her organization. But what I noticed is a lot of the activists who worked, you know, the young people mainly who worked to support those efforts are also climate activists. Um, right. These are very overlapping circles. So climate activists and climate voters played a bigger role in this U.S. election than any election in our history. And, and yeah. that's worth noting. Interesting. Christian, I felt like the, the Senate result, uh, which is not entirely done yet because right. of Georgia, right? So there's an outside chance that the Democrats get to 50 senators in these Georgia special elections that'll take place in, in January. But assuming that that, that doesn't happen, um, I think it does uh, lessen the 
uh, ambition of what you think you might be able to accomplish with Congress. However, it does not uh, in any way erase it. Um, and, and so I think there's there's several reasons for for optimism that I'll start with. <laughs> you know, one, the United States will rejoin the Paris Agreement um, that we vacated this week um, and once again be in the business of, of global climate leadership. And I'll come back to that. Two, uh, obviously, we can once again have a government that believes in science, but also revert back to the Obama era regulatory changes um, uh, on everything from fuel efficiency to you know how you regulate emissions. You mean roll back um, the it, rollbacks, right? <laughs> roll back the rollback, you know, re, you know at least get back to the, the status quo we had fought to get to at the end of the Obama years and conservation efforts and, and the, the rest of it. Um, but then I also do think, um, third, I do think that in any case, and even if we don't take back the Senate, um, that clean energy... Um, and climate is going to be a feature uh, in Joe Biden's first legislative year, uh, in part because whatever s- stimulus and spending package that he pursues as part of an economic recovery plan from COVID is clearly going to feature significant investments in renewable energy um, and in energy efficiency. And yeah. I, I just think that that would be something that he would negotiate as a deal breaker, um, even with a Republican-controlled Senate. So I do think you'll get something ambitious, um, even legislatively, in addition to regulation, um, in terms of investments um, in, in clean energy and energy efficiency. And then lastly, you know, U.S. leadership internationally on this issue, I think, will be at the forefront of the Biden foreign policy. And you've seen that in his comments. You've seen that and everybody around him, that the idea that this is kind of a a secondary or niche issue, that's gone. This will be embedded into how the United States engages China, how the United States engages Europe, how the United States engages Brazil and and every other country in the world. Um, That shift that you talked about last time I was on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And it's where we were, you know, we weren't, you know, we got there in the last, certainly the second term of the Obama administration, certainly the last two or three years. But, But I think that that, you know, will now become part of the the muscle movements of the U.S. government. And there's a lot to be done, therefore, to raise the ambition of our national goal um, under Paris, but also to try to work with other countries to raise their ambitions. Everyone yeah. else's. Yep. So um, can I, you're right in my face, jump in the question. So I just wanted to, I wanted to pick up on something you just said there, which I think is super fascinating around the fact that the COVID recovery is going to have climate baked into it, right? And that that has to be how it happens. And I was reading some analysis that sort of said, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, that when the Affordable Care Act came around, the American people didn't quite buy that that piece of legislation was also a recovery from the financial crisis. And that is part of what led to the pushback on it. Do you think now that the Biden team kind of, will be able to persuade the American people that a package of legislation that includes climate action is also really a recovery from COVID and a build back better piece. Do you think that the electorate is in a place now where that can be communicated? Yeah, I think so. And I think that, look, you know, as someone who considers myself, you know, uh, in my own small way, a climate activist, you know, you could at times be somewhat dispirited, you know, by Joe Biden kind of distancing himself from the Green New Deal and, and, and not making the, the completely robust um, argument um, that, you know, the authors of that legislation did. But what he did do, that is probably one of the reasons why he won, but also why I think this will be part of the COVID recovery, is he framed this relentlessly as a jobs job package. Job creation. Um, that, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and, and 
by the way, we're in a different situation now than we were a decade ago. There are many more clean energy jobs in this country. It's not hypothetical anymore. I mean, there are far more Americans in Texas employed in the clean energy sector than even in the oil and gas sector. And that's Texas, you know? Yeah. So this is shifting. And I think people get that. I think the other thing is, you know, I recall back in 2009 when we came in, the debate around legislation was on, you know, cap and trade and right. the House Energy Bill, which was, again, kind of viewed and presented as an environmental piece of legislation. Um, I think, therefore, there's been a, a shift in framing that is constructive in the last decade around economic growth and stimulus that can come through climate action. There's been a much greater awareness, frankly, uh, and mobilization on behalf of climate action. And there's been, I think, you know, astute political framing by Joe Biden uh, that this is a part of how he thinks about his economic plan and job creation. Um, And so I think those factors just create a much more conducive environment this time around Mm. than we had in 2009 when the House passed that legislation. Ben, here's an obnoxious question. In the middle of all of this optimism and the promise of uh, January and beyond, what do you think the new administration will not be able to do with respect to where we should be on climate as science demands it? Where, what are the boundaries of what you think they might be able to do? Well, I think one of the things that worries people like me is, is we don't necessarily even know the boundaries in part because we don't know how much the work that Trump did and Mitch McConnell in the courts is going to impact climate action. Yeah. Um, you now have a six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court. You've got all these other lower courts that have been packed with uh, pretty far right judges. And so we don't know if challenges to regulatory action, you know, challenges to EPA action, challenges to what the executive branch of the U.S. government can do will hamstring, you know, uh, a robust climate change agenda. We just don't know. Um, we faced, you know, those challenges in the Obama years, and it's gotten worse in terms of the makeup of the courts in many ways. So I think that's something that um, that is probably at the forefront of my concerns, along with just what you could get through the United States Senate. Um, although, like I said, I do think you'll be able to get something through the United States Senate. With the U.S. president moving in this direction again, with the Democrats still having a healthy majority in the House, and by the way, a majority that is going to be very focused on climate change, mm. um, given the, the the nature of the, the House. And, you know, I think with Democratic constituencies expecting action and with state and local governments taking action, philanthropic and private sector folks taking action, like there's a sense of, I think, a momentum that is going to come with Biden that, you know, I think is going to move the needle pretty far in the right direction. The question is how much the the courts might end up putting up a barrier yeah. a barrier to that. Yeah. You, you've been so eloquent, uh, Ben, talking about, you know, Citizens United and money kind of infecting politics and, and, and making it really difficult to govern. And yet it's great to hear you talk about, um, you know, a new, a new climate, new atmosphere. There's so much sort of citizen engagement. I mean, Yes, there's a problem with the courts, but how might this play out, you know, differently, uh, you know, over the next four years? How might we or the people listening to this podcast think about how to frame their uh, activities to sort of take advantage now of of this this door that's opened? I think one of the things that's going to be important on climate change, and it's true of other issues too, is that you saw very effective mobilization politically in opposition to Trump, you know, um, because Mm. Trump was so 
evidently a danger <laughs> to the climate yeah, yeah, because yeah. of the kind of, you know, completely senseless withdrawal from Paris and the kind of hatchet he took to regulations and, you know, the embrace of coal. I mean, he was a cartoonish version of somebody who's a climate change denier. And that got people yes. off their couches and that got people involved. And my experience, frankly, of being in government is sometimes when you're actually in charge, people take their foot off the gas pedal a little bit. And the, the political push to get something done is is not as great when you're in charge as when you're out. And, and so I think the main thing is for people who care about climate first and foremost, recognizing how much time, you know, is wasting here. I mean, frankly, we were out of time. Um, there has to be a, a sense of urgency in pressuring, by the way, the Biden administration, as well as, um, you know, the opposition to climate action in making sure this is seen as a voting issue in American politics and in making sure that, you know, if people don't like the impact that dark money has had in denying action on climate, then, you know, people with means have to step up and, and make investments yep. in American politics to to move the needle in the other direction. This is all doable. Um there are more of us than them. There are more people who want to act on this issue. The polls show pretty overwhelmingly Americans get it and want to do something about it. Um, and, and so we just have to be, uh, we have to resist complacency here um, that just because the presidency changed that um, you know, we can trust that the right things will happen. And I think people mm -hmm. who care about this, whether they're at the you know community level or whether they're people with voices and means internationally, uh, need to continue to, to, to press on it. I think that's it's such a great point because you know I mean the the unity of 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 the left or of people you know the liberals has has been created by the opposition right and at the moment yeah. when now that goes away how do we assess priorities you know dive in and do particular things and of course you know as as you I'm so I have to say I'm so encouraged to hear you say it might be possible to get something through the Senate it's not just going to be the logjam that you guys experienced when you were in the White House and we'll see what happens there I mean. What should people do now that care about climate? And none of the three of us are U.S. citizens, but many of our listeners are. Um, presumably, there will be a legislative agenda. It's very encouraging that Biden closed on climate in his campaign the last couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, you know better than anybody, there are small windows to get legislation through, and those windows are smaller than people realize when they end up, you know, getting into government. Do you think climate will be top of the legislative agenda? And what can be done now to ensure that that is the case? Well, look, I mean, you know, first and foremost, if people are in the United States or <laughs> particularly in the state of Georgia, um, <laughs> you know, this control of the Senate is not impossible. Uh, and again, I don't yeah. want to raise people's expectations because we haven't won a Senate seat in Georgia in a long time. And even though Biden won, that doesn't guarantee that that these two people running who are good candidates um, are, are going to get through. But you can obviously support uh, those races in Georgia. I think beyond that, um, I think there needs to be a sense that on climate change, there's an organized constituency of Americans and American voters and citizens who are, are going to stick to this in the same way we've seen movements on other issues and that they're going to they're going to be calling members of Congress and they're going to be demonstrating in the streets and they're going to be raising money for causes. And, you know, that, that essentially that the, the climate movement is a kind of a key part of the the backdrop of American politics now. And so when they sit, you know, when they sit down to figure out what yeah. Biden's first 100 days agenda is, when he sits down to negotiate, if he has to, with, with Mitch McConnell as Senate Majority Leader, the idea that 
clean energy and climate investments can be traded away is is seen as something of a red line you know that's something that that Biden mm. can't walk away from um uh, in those in those types of negotiations um and so there's that there's that immediate challenge of Georgia but then there's this broader challenge of like how do you make this um just a a part of the American political dynamic really intensively in the first year of a Biden administration but then as a permanent presence going forward yeah Awesome. Because I, ironically, right, the four years of uh, complete vacuum or rather paddling back uh, has made action now, policy incentives, regulations, legislation, all the more urgent, right? If we had yeah, had yeah. steady pace along the four years, then we wouldn't have such a buildup of urgency. But now we are really totally up against the wall. So we to, to go back to where we started our conversation with you, yeah. no time to let up. Hmm. Yeah, no, and, and what you guys actually, you know, you know better than me even, is there's been all this innovation during those four years around the world, but exactly. also you know, even in the U.S. at the state and local level. So I think as the Biden team kind of moves into, you know, management of the federal government, there should be also kind of a lessons learned too of if we want to increase our pace of what we can do, can we learn from an American state or can we, you know, what are people doing at municipalities? You know, what are people doing in other parts mm -hmm. of the world that is making progress? Mm -hmm. um, and so another way to kind of inform the momentum of that first year of a new administration is to make sure that the, the right models are getting in front of the right people as well, you know? Awesome. Okay. A la last question, Ben. Um, you know, you 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 said uh, beautifully that we <laughs> it's a terrible thing, but you, we can't take our eyes off Trump. I mean, he's been like this kind of siren, I guess. You know, like just screaming out of the television. How are we going to be able to keep uh, the energy? I mean, not the negative energy, but the positive energy. How are we going to be able to keep a sort of dynamic attention uh, to this critical issue going over the next four years, next eight years, next hundred years? Yeah, I think that. I mean, you know, first of all. I hate to put it this way because I like to be positive, but part of it is to maintain some negative energy. I mean, the election was a little bit close for comfort for some of us, mm -hmm. you know. Yep. Um, and I think we've all learned that these issues aren't settled. You know, I think we've kind of felt like certainly when Barack Obama was reelected, that the idea that you know there'd be another president who kind of denied climate change and you know rolled everything back, you know, that we'd crossed over that hump like clearly we thought we it was impossible um, yeah and things yeah. can swing back and they could swing back in two years in their congressional elections they can swing back in four years so i do think you know the, the negative energy you know people have to be outraged we like, call it outrage yeah the outrage you know th this can go back the other direction and, and the, you know we've learned that they won't care they won't pay attention to fires and floods and hurricanes so that 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 is not enough to shake at least Republican political leadership out of their complacency. Um, I do think, you know, the the polling does show, though, that the American public is, is, is moving on this. And then I think, you know, framing the what needs to be done affirmatively, and this has been said before, but that this is what, you know, you guys say this better than anybody, but like, what are the possibilities? Uh, you know, let's America needs a national purpose. America needs a sense mm. of purpose right now. We are adrift. You know, we we post 9-11, it was supposed to be terrorism, but th that's a pretty toxic American purpose. Just we're <laughs> going to fight a war forever against a set of terrorists. And 
you know, we're kind of, we need a big goal. We need something big to do as a country. Mm. And, and I think the idea of like leading a the national world project and dealing with this existential challenge. Yeah. Yeah. It's a national project that people can get behind and everybody's welcome to be a part of it. And it's going to create jobs and innovation and it's going to lead to new investments in research mm -hmm. and technology and development that can, you know, do all kinds of things to make life better for people. Um, I, I think that kind of positive framing can be important. And then, you know, I think we have to be specific um, in working with the rest of the world in terms of, you know, okay, we get it. We have a huge credibility gap. We're the people who left Paris, but we're willing to put more on the table here. And so then we'll go to China and say, hey, Xi Jinping, we really welcomed what you said in the fall, but we're really concerned about the Belt Road Initiative and <laughs> the, the infrastructure you're building there. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, hey, Brazil, uh, we're really concerned about the Amazon and this is going to affect our bilateral relationship. Um, you know, and on down the line, yeah. you know, having, you know, tough conversations with other countries, but the conversations that are framed as trying to, uh, to do something big together, you know, so both at home and abroad, yeah. I think this is the issue that this is the only issue really out there in the world today where you can, you know, with this collection of, 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 of nationalists and what have you, there's still, you know, building and broad public consensus that something needs to be done here. And and I think that Americans should try to to claim that um, mantle in, in collaboration and partnership, not as a hegemon, but as a partner with, uh, with other countries as well as within our own. Amen to that. <laughs> ben, thank you so much. Thank you for taking time, as we said at the beginning, on a very, very hectic, uh, albeit fantastically celebratory day. Um, we should we should celebrate today and tomorrow, and then roll up our sleeves. Um, and then, roll, yeah, 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 yeah. Give ourselves twenty four <laughs> hours here. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. Good to see you, Ben. Bye. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you. Greatly appreciate it. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye. What a great discussion with Ben Rhodes. So grateful to him for coming on on such a busy day. And now, as it is a special day, we have another interview for you. This is Todd Stern, who was the climate envoy for President Obama in the years leading up to and during the Paris Agreement and really led the US in the formal negotiation process. Todd, thank you so much for taking uh, some minutes on an incredibly exciting and very busy day for everyone. We've been literally uh, screaming, yelling, and jumping on one foot for hours here um, in expectation of the formal announcement because we're recording this on Friday afternoon. But Todd, uh, you, uh, you led the U.S. team into the negotiations of Paris and one, I would say, of your incredibly valuable contributions was the U.S. reaching out bilaterally to China. So I am sure uh, that you have been incredibly frustrated about that over the past four years. Where are we now on that? What can a newly minted Biden administration do to repair the damage done with China? and to get back on a positive, mutual effort uh, that would take us much farther and much quicker on climate efforts. So uh, a, a few comments uh, in response to that. And first of all, it goes without saying that, um, that you've got to have China and the US fully engaged in the, in the system for this to work. 
Uh, it also probably goes without saying that the uh, bilateral cooperation that we developed uh, between us, the US and China, during the Obama years was, I think, enormously uh, important and consequential with respect to the negotiations over that whole seven-year period that, you know, from the time that Obama started until Paris and um, and was, uh, you know, a, a certainly quite important factor. So I am keenly aware of, I worked hard to help try to make that happen, and I'm keenly aware of the importance of it. Having said that, we have to understand that that the United States and China are in a very different place right now in terms of the overall relationship. Uh, it has deteriorated a lot, and not just because of Donald Trump. I mean, I'm I'm more than willing to uh, to lay all sorts of uh, of uh, of problems uh, deservedly at his feet. Uh, and I don't think that I don't think that uh, that and I think the Trump administration's posture is uh, has not been uh, has not been useful. But it is also true that there are serious concerns about. Uh, about Chinese conduct across the, uh, the broad swath of the U.S. political spectrum, from from liberal Democrats to conservative Republicans. From my pr- perspective, um, we the, it will be very important for the Biden administration, and I, I I'm not part of it. I haven't been part of the campaign, so I can't speak for them, and I don't. But I think it will be important to try to manage a relationship that uh, that uh, will have both competition, but also will need to have collaboration as part of it. I mean, those people who want to look at this relationship uh, through through the lens of a kind of a new Cold War or an out-and-out strategic competition, uh, which doesn't leave room for, uh, for, for collaboration on crucial global issues uh, like pandemics, for example, and like climate change uh, above all, uh, I think I would be making a real mistake, but that's something to be uh, to be mindful of. Um, having said that, I think that there are, are players uh, in the uh, in the definitely in the in the in the Chinese uh, uh, firmament there that are that are keen on uh, renewing that uh, that cooperation. I think there certainly will be on this side as well, and. It will be important to try to do that for all of the obvious reasons. China's 27% of global emissions, and the U.S. is a lot less now, but it's still 13 or 14. And uh, even with the damage of uh, of the Trump administration and the withdrawal from the multilateral system in so many ways, I think there's still going to be a great deal of uh, of eagerness to have the United States back in the game, I think also wariness, because how could you not be um, watching mm-hmm. what's from right. abroad, what's happened here? But I think that there will be that eagerness to have the U.S. back, and, and it'll be important for us to work with China, the Chinese if it's if it's at all possible. I, I think that will be a global eagerness there, global eagerness to get the U.S. back. Yeah. Um, and, and Todd, beyond China, that clearly I would say is probably first priority, what other countries do you think trickle up to um, first-tier attention for uh, for the um, Biden administration? Well, I I I think that um, from for, again I, I can tell you what I think, uh, and I, I don't I can't speak for the Biden administration, but your um, opinion, but I, your opinion, but uh, <laughs> yeah, 
my opinion, look, I, I think that um, that it will be uh, the, the sort of crucial starting point is is going to be uh, the EU and uh, it's EU and UK. You've got to say both of those now. I think that, that nobody allies. is doing. Yes. No, nobody is doing more in terms of no, nobody gets this and is acting on it. Uh, gets the scale and speed at which change is necessary to be on the track for 1.5 by by 2050 net zero. All of those things better than uh, the EU, both both getting it and acting on it. So those things are that's important. So I think the EU will be a critical mm. partner, a traditional partner uh, of the U.S. There will be a huge amount of relationship. Uh, you know, it's not so much repair work, but just renewal. And and uh, I think the, the Europeans will be, um, I, I'm quite sure, thrilled <laughs> to have an American administration that seeks to uh, to be the kind of America that they're used to. Um, I think that there, there's a whole other, there's a whole other uh, group of players, though. I, I think that it, that um, that it will be, to, to my way of thinking, very important to uh, reanimate the kind of progressive uh, coalition that took shape under the rubric then, wouldn't be the same rubric now, but back in Paris, with it came to be called the High Ambition Coalition. But um, And just a step back, because you have to remember what's going on now. The mission of diplomacy is no longer to get an agreement done, because we got an agreement done. There is a mission of diplomacy, certainly, to continue to sort of the care and tending and development of the Paris regime for sure. But the biggest diplomatic mission, in my view, uh, is to get enough of the big players in the world acting in the transformational way that uh, that will make it possible to meet the Paris goals. And you're not going to meet the Paris goals just by having having you and FCCC meetings. That's not how it's In a done. timely fashion. Right. It, 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 no, no. Scale and speed. Exactly. Meet you and the Paris goals in, in the, you know, in the period that, that uh, between speed. now and 2050. And by the way, 2050, yes, but but that means now. And I mean, one of the things that I that I was very, very favorably, uh, very pleased by Xi Jinping's announcement at the UN about uh, about um, uh, essentially net zero carbon neutrality before 2060. I choose to hear before 2060 is 2051. Uh, but um, mm. <laughs> but the thing that he, the thing that he the thing that he did not say that the, the president uh, the president she did not say uh, yet is uh, anything about what's going to happen in this decade. And indeed, by saying only that it would that they would peak mm-hmm. before 2030. That that I mean, if before 2030 means 2024, that would be great. If it means if it means December of 2029, that's not so good. And I have heard some things come out of the, the some signals coming from China, which makes it seem as though they have in mind something more like a flat line for the 2020s, and then a steep a steep uh, steep curve down after that. And that's actually not good enough. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of coal that they are that they are planning to build, both domestically and abroad, and that's that's a big problem. I didn't mean to go back onto China so much, but it, but uh, the point is that the, the mission, the diplomatic mission, is to get as many big players as possible, representing as much of the world's uh, emissions as possible, really on track. I think the impact of uh, of the progressive countries, even if they're small themselves, even if they don't have so much in the way of emissions, is important in, in terms of providing the kind of uh, of political leverage 
that uh, that that will be important to to push countries in the right direction. Obviously, there's other big players that are big in and of themselves: India, Indonesia, Brazil, places like that. Brazil, by the way, obviously it, it, it's a it's a serious problem what's going on in Brazil right now um, vis-a-vis the Amazon, because if you if you take that too far and we're at risk of it going too far, you cannot get it back. And um, last question, Todd, because it's a very busy day for you today. Um, do, do you think that there is enough public understanding and public support for a United States that would re-enter into that multilateral space? Or has that multilateral engagement eroded so deeply over the past four years that there would be no public support for the kinds of engagements um, that you've just described? And you're talking about public support in the United States? In the United States, yes. Yeah. Um, So... uh... This is the situation that we have in in the United States right now. Um, With respect to the kind of Democratic Party side of the equation, uh, the level of support is higher than it has ever been. The the role that climate change played in in the Democratic primary part of this campaign was completely unprecedented. Right. I mean, mm, yeah. people supported climate action for sure in 2016, 2012, whatnot, but it was never seen much as as much of a campaign issue. This time, along with health care, climate change was one of the two top issues uh, among Democrats. And uh, and so I think that that you have a big chunk of the public that is still not you know, understanding enough what needs to be done, but much, much, much more with much more engagement and much more kind of determination than we have seen before. Uh, On the Republican side, among Trump supporters, not good, uh, and actually probably went backwards um, because of, you know, so much rhetoric over the four years listening to him. But if you look at polling, on the Republican side, it also, it also divides generationally. So if you're, if you're looking at millennials or younger than that, you have not as much uh, enthusiasm or concern as you see on the Democratic side, but it's completely different from the kind of older generations of Republicans. So it's moving in the right direction. Uh, it's, very, it's, it's more powerful than it's ever been with respect to a big chunk of the electorate. Uh, and I think uh, that, you know, going in the right direction. And so to your question, is there enough support to re-engage multilaterally? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there was <clears throat> tremendous support for Paris when we got it done. And uh, and I think, you know, we and everybody else are living through their own version of the California fires, the storms and droughts and, and floods and all the rest that, that, that we're seeing. And it's and it's bad here. Uh, and so I think that that uh, that lots of things concern me, but the lack of public support for international engagement does not concern me. Thank heavens. I'm so glad you put that very clearly. Todd, thank you so much for, um, again, belatedly, but I've thanked you many times. Thank you for everything you did to help us to get to the Paris Agreement um, and for the patience that you have exercised during these four years. Um, And in advance, I am sure that the Biden administration will be reaching out to you for uh, wise counsel and deep experience. So thank you in advance for for guiding them. Thanks, Todd. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. 
everyone, it's Clay back in Detroit. What an absolute privilege to get a few minutes with Todd Stern. You know, it's so incredible and very refreshing to hear his optimism surrounding public support for global collaboration on climate change. And I know in particular these past four years have felt very isolating for us here in the U.S., but as we see everything unfolding in front of us regarding the election, it really feels like we're on a new path, and it's really exciting. So we're going to celebrate and then we're gonna get to work. Okay, at the end of every episode, we have on an incredible musical guest for you, and this week, it's M.F. Tomlinson. The song he's about to play is called Some of Nothing, and when we asked him about writing the song, he said, one day I read in the paper about there being 50 years left until climate change made much of the earth inhospitable, and it all clicked for me. I wanted to write a song about the way we live, striving for a better future, while simultaneously erasing it. And when we asked him about what is the role for artists in the climate crisis, he actually took the time to promote this incredible project called FEAT, F-E-A-T, that's in Australia. And it gives artists a chance to invest money from their touring into buying ownership stakes in solar farms, and also to build infrastructure for new solar farms. They can invest anywhere from $5 to $500,000. And M.F. Tomlinson says... It's a truly exceptional example of musicians doing something incredible to make a difference in this crisis. Examples like this show generally we probably have more of a role to play as people than as artists. However, some good art is always a plus. So here it is, some good art. Performing live for Outrage and Optimism, this is M.F. Tomlinson with Some of Nothing. Enjoy. My soul should be worn out by now But I now bounce to the sound of the time When the million voices are breaking through So you can stop talking falsely now You better tend to your respect to when my girl's in the room You know she's right on You'll find out no rest if you're wicked In a world where Cedar is still singing the blues It's better it worse somehow It's too much
Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. The track you just heard was Some of Nothing by M.F. Tomlinson. And I keep saying this after every song, you have to go see the music video. There's some Dolly Zoom shots, you know, like Wes Anderson meets Robert Klaus meets Stanley Kubrick. You know, those type of Zoom shots. It's a really fun, fast-paced escape from linear box-type thinking. You just got to see it. Uh, He also sips on a tangerine LaCroix, which is the most underrated flavor of carbonated waters. That's That's a hot take. Links to check out the music video and to check out more of his music. And Feet, F-E-A-T, the musician funded solar panel project, all in the show notes. Check it. Okay, the credits. Outrage and Optimism is a global optimism production. Executive produced by Marina Mancilla German and produced by Clay Carnell. From Detroit to Bonn, Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Fran Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. And our hosts are Christiana Figueres, Tom Rivet-Karnak, and Paul Dickinson. Special thanks this week to Namita Uberoy for making our interview with Ben Rhodes possible. And thank you to our guests, Ben Rhodes and Todd Stern. So if you're like me and you're up at 2 a.m., 3.30 a.m., 5 a.m., 5.01 a.m., checking the election results, you should look us up at Global Optimism on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And if you're enjoying the podcast, it means everything. If you could rate us five stars and write us a review. We read every single one that comes through. So thank you. Okay, a new chapter is ahead. We've got another episode coming your way next week. Hit subscribe right now so you don't miss it. We'll see you then. Bye.